from Jonah chapter 4. This displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, this is, is this not what I said when I was in another country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, oh, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. He made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose... God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah until he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Oh, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, Well, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in one night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more 120 persons who do not even know their right hand from their left, and many cattle. This is the word of the Lord. So, like Lem said, um, this was the sermon kind of centered on the, the sovereignty of God, and, and ironically, right, coronavirus shuts everything down, and, and uh, so I've been thinking about it for a year, uh, which Josh has told me is the worst thing that can happen to a sermon. So if it's really bad, um, I'm sorry. Um, the good news is that I kind of figure that even though I got an email this, this week, uh, that sermons are only 30 minutes, I figure that if I take the 30 minutes from the one I didn't preach and then the 30 minutes for this one, I'll have an hour and I'll be under time. Um, so that'll be good news. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, there was an ice storm that hit Texas, right? And there was a huge accident that occurred. Um, you, you might have seen the picture on the news or on the Weather Channel, which always kind of interests me that the Weather Channel seems to have stories on everything but weather, right? Um, but, uh, you know, it was this massive thing and a tragedy that all of these cars were wrecked and destroyed. But in 2003, 300 cars over the course of three weeks in the same area were systematically um, destroyed, and nobody called it a disaster or a, a catastrophe or anything like this. Um, it was the filming of, of the sequel to the Matrix movie, Matrix Reloaded, and if you haven't seen it, you didn't miss much. Um, but what you did miss is that they spent three weeks 
filming for this um, movie in action sequence on a freeway. They built with, with exit ramps and everything, the, the entire thing, and, and, you know, longer than it takes them to shoot some movies, they, they destroyed 300 cars. It, it doesn't even hold the record, uh, but it's second on the list of the most cars destroyed. Uh, Fast and the Furious, this, this series has destroyed like 800. It's like one per minute. Um, but the point is, is that nobody talked about it like a tragedy because of the relationship between the creator and the event. So, so in, when 300 cars are destroyed, it, it's not that it aligned to some kind of cosmic sense of good or not good. R really what happened was GM um, donated all of those cars to the movie set so that they could be destroyed. And nobody talked about it like it was a sad event, that it was a waste, that it was anything, because their purpose was defined by their creator. In the Nicene Creed, it starts, we believe in, and, and Clay talked to us about what that means. We believe in God, not we believe that God. We believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And since these creeds are statements of, of universal agreement within Christians of many different denominations and, and beliefs, I want to submit to you that believing in God as creator is different than believing that God was creator. And, and I want to talk about the implications of believing in God as creator. Because just like the illustration that I used, it's really a statement of the relationship between God, creator, and his creation. And this gets us into trouble a lot of times. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, kind of summarizes the, the general problem that he's addressing in the book. And, and he's kind of summarizing why a lot of people kind of have... This, this wrestling match almost with God theologically, you get to a point where you, you hit a crisis point, a lot of people do, because the, the line of thinking goes, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do whatever he wished. But the creatures are not happy, therefore... God lacks either goodness or power or both. In other words, God's not God. And it starts with this premise, and, and this is what uh, C.S. Lewis kind of unpacks and deconstructs in the book, is when we say, if God were good, what we're really thinking in our, he our heads is good the way that I define it. And in that way, we're no different than Adam and Eve that saw the fruit that was good to them to be as God, knowing right from evil. 
and, and so what you have is you have creator, you have creation. And this is normally how things are supposed to be. But sin, all sin, depending on the particulars of what it is, is a flipping on our end where we try to exalt ourselves above the creator. We try to, to flip that. And one of the ways that we do that is by trying to define these definitions and then defining God based on those. And I want to explore that dynamic today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing your word to us. We thank you for your mercy to us. God, I pray that in this time you would use the words of my mouth to speak to the hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit, that it would be for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name. So we all know the story of Jonah, right? The Bible story of Jonah. Jonah wants to go to, to or God wants Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is not a great city. As a matter of fact, Nineveh in Jewish literature and historical terms is right up there with Babylon and, and Sodom. It, it's the embodiment of evil. These are not just like milk toast kind of wishy-washy, trying to do their best, but they sin because they're humans kind of people. Uh, the Ninevites relished in their brutality. They, they took pleasure in, in brutality and creating pain for other people. They were, by any definition of any group of people, pretty much at any time of history, evil. And God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to proclaim to Nineveh that they need to repent or I'm going to destroy the city. Jonah says, nope, not going to go. He gets on a boat. He goes as far away as he can. God says, nope, you're going, and, and sends a storm to, to Jonah, and eventually Jonah gets thrown overboard. He spends some time in the whale. He reconsiders his options um, in Jonah 2, and, and so he goes in Jonah 3, and he does what he's supposed to do, and then we all throw a party and leave off Jonah 4, which is my favorite chapter of the story because this is where I find myself. So often, you know, it's normally Krista that, that points this out to me, and, and a lot of times it's with my kids. I'm Jonah sitting up on the hill, right, almost with my arms crossed and my lower lip out, throwing an adult temper tantrum because I know that what she is telling me I'm supposed to do is right, but I don't want to do it. I'm mad about having to do what I know is right or having the correct perspective. Why? Because I'm focused on me. And, and this is kind of like if you look at Jonah 4, Jonah thinks that he's the protagonist of the story. He thinks that Jonah, just because the book is named after him, is about him, and it's not. <laughs> Jonah is about God. God is the protagonist of the story. Um, Jonah is the antagonist. He's the one opposing the actions that God is trying to do in, in Nineveh and in Jonah. Charles Feinberg says that the main message of the book, its central dominating theme, is that of the Bible itself. God's love is ever seeking to save those who are rightly doomed 
to eternal punishment. That's Nineveh's story. That's Jonah's story. That's my story. That I am rightly doomed to eternal punishment, but because of God's love, he sought to save me. But we see that Jonah in this chapter, because he's focused on himself, he can't see it. He can't see it for himself, and he can't see it for Nineveh. And so he, we find him in this very disillusioned, very lonely, very desolate place, right? In, in the first three verses, we find that he's very angry with God. It, it, the text says that he, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. In the Hebrew, it says that Jonah found it exceedingly evil for God. Talk about creator, here I go, right? Like, it is evil, God, for you to do this for Nineveh. Jonah understands justice, right? And God is just. And so Jonah has a correct assessment of what the, the Ninevites deserve based on their actions, based on God's holiness, based on all of those things. But he's leaving out all of the rest of it. And he's trapped by feelings of Jewish nationalism, Jonah is an example that Jesus brings up later to confront the, the Pharisees in Matthew with the same kind of fundamental issue, right? That, that God should have this special relationship with, with Israel that's not based on relationship. It's just, hey, I'm a Jew and I deserve preferential treatment and the rest of the world can, can just be condemned, and when Jesus and, and when God tells Jonah, no, I want you to go to Nineveh, the mortal enemy, to proclaim this because it's not about these temporal relationships. It's about this vertical relationship. Jonah misses it. And before I judge him too harshly, and, and this is just a metaphor that I use all the time. I'm Jonah sitting on the hill. Like, this is pretty much like, you know, there's, there's usually a period of time, sometimes it's hours and sometimes it's days or weeks, before I'm brought to a point where I can admit that and, and that's basically me acknowledging what, what God is trying to do in Jonah in this passage. Um, but this is, this is me too. It, just as a kind of trite example com compared to what we're talking about here, I'm a three on the Enneagram, which means that I love this right now. A bunch of people in the room looking at me and, and thinking about how awesome I may or may not be, and it, it mortifies me that it might not be perceived that way by other people, and, and um, it, it ends up being, uh, you know, your greatest strength in one sense can be your greatest downfall because that's not why I should be here doing these things, but I do that at work too. I'm a teacher. Um, and, and if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, the um, designation, which is somewhat arbitrary of, at least that's what I tell myself to feel better about it, uh, Teacher of the Year matters a good deal to me, and I have not been nominated for it in 10 years of teaching yet, and it deeply, the injustice of it really bothers me. 
like they announced the three finalists and I'm not on the list and Krista knows that she just needs to like take care of the kids tonight because <laughs> but I'm buying into when I do that right I'm buying into this theology of Toby Keith I want to talk about me <laughs> right and and it pretty sure that's not a theological work but but that's that's, it, it means something to me to the point where it's hard for me to even be happy for the people that I should be happy for. To acknowledge what they've done because I play this comparison game and while they did this this day and I didn't do that. And that's what Jonah's doing, right? I mean, are, are we forgetting the guy that just had to be thrown into the ocean and swallowed by a whale to go where God told him to go? Like if anybody should be aware of his need for God's forgiveness and grace, it should be Jonah. But instead of repenting, instead of doing what he should, he doubles down on it, and, and he's just angry. And this is where you see God as a father, which is the other part of the creed that we've discussed already, dealing with Jonah with gentleness. Because he says in verse 4, verse 4 to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? Is it good? He's inviting Jonah to, to realign his perspective, right? He's inviting Jonah to, to flip it back where Creator comes back and Creator gets to decide what's good and what's not. Some translations say, Do you have a right to be angry? And what God's telling Jonah here is that God is creator, and so ultimately, he defines what is good and what's not. And this is in response to this question to Jonah, basically telling God, I knew you were going to save those people, and that's why I didn't want to go. Jonah wasn't scared of the Ninevites. He didn't go because these are really bad dudes and he doesn't want to spend time with them. You know, that's why I don't want to go to a motorcycle bar or any other kind of places like that because I'm frightened of those people. But Jonah's not saying that. He's saying, I knew that if I went and I told them those things, God, that you were going to step up with your compassion and with your grace and that you were going to do something and you were going to save those people and I wanted to see them destroyed. But the book of Jonah isn't just about God's compassion to Nineveh. It's also about his compassion to this self-righteous prophet sitting on a hill, wallowing in his anger, rebelling openly against God. But good is defined by what it's been created to do. And that's the, the message that God then undertakes in the second half of this chapter to show Jonah. And so God sends a plant. It says that he sent the plant and that it was good for easing Jonah's discomfort. And Jonah's like, finally, God's taking compassion on me, Right? But then the text goes on and it says that the very next day, God provided, 
God ordained, God put in motion a set of events where a worm destroyed the plant that was good to Jonah, right? He takes it away from Jonah again. John Calvin points out that in in his commentary that Jonah's sense of justice about this gourd or about this plant has nothing to do with anything but Jonah, right? It's good to Jonah because it's giving him shade. It's not good because it's fulfilling its purpose. He's not even thinking about its purpose. He's thinking about what he thinks its purpose should be. And John Calvin points out that every gourd in the entire world could have withered and died suddenly except for Jonah's plant, and Jonah wouldn't have felt any bit of remorse for it whatsoever. He wouldn't have talked about, you know, the sadness of sin and its corrupting effect on creation or anything else like that. And how often am I like that? Do I really care about injustice the way that I perceive it when I feel like I'm being slighted or passed over or that people aren't recognizing what I've done? Do I care when other people, and I know that they're being passed over? Normally, if I'm honest, no. But the plant was created to be destroyed to show God's love to Jonah. Because God's after a deeper truth with Jonah than just his, his temporal um, comfort. Calvin says it this way, we see here that God had concealed himself for a time but did not yet forsake his servant. He often looks on us from behind. That is, though we think that he has forgotten us, he yet observes how we go on that he may in due time afford help. God then did not wait until he was sought, but anticipated miserable Jonah, who was now seeking destruction to himself. God knew where Jonah was, and even in this place of rebellion, we see God reaching out to Jonah time and time again. It's not just the plant, it's not just the wind that comes in and withers the plant, God comes back to Jonah again. Is it good, Jonah, that you're angry about this plant? This thing that you had nothing to do with it growing, nothing to do with anything? And Jonah says, yeah, it is. And God says, well, then it's probably good for me to be concerned with the 120,000 people that live in Nineveh as well. I wish I could explain all the withered plants or the exceedingly hot winds that God brings into different people's lives, and I can't. I heard a story, uh, not a story, it's a life for a family right now. A man in my small group said that somebody that he, they're close friends with, three days before that child was due to be born, they couldn't find a heartbeat. I can explain that as evil, Right? I can explain that as sin and its corrupting influence on the world, but I can't say what God's doing in that moment. And if I tried, it would probably feel pretty hollow. I can't explain 
the tragic deaths that occur in some families and not others. And, and I can't just back off and say, well, I mean, God is sovereign, so ultimately God is allowing these things to happen. And, and it's difficult, right? And this is where when we get caught into this, I want to bring God under my control, so I'm going to say that it's not good for small children to die. that I get myself all backwards and I try to be creator. And, and like I said, I can't say what it is. And this is why we start the creed with I believe in. Because we have to decide what we believe in about God. And Jonah confesses it. Steadfast love, compassionate, merciful We actually confessed it today in Ephesians 1, verse 7, where we said that in him we have redemption through his blood. And if you take a couple of steps back to verses 3 and 4 of that chapter, it makes it clear that this was God's plan from the foundation of the earth. From before God even made a world, he had planned and ordained to save it from its own sin. And when we focus on our brokenness, when Jonah focuses on his own brokenness and his own rebellion and his own sin, instead of worrying about playing that comparison game, everything starts to look different, right? Why me, God? It's how Paul can say that he was the chiefest of all sinners. He didn't actually mean that he was the lowest, worst human being on the face of the planet. He meant that as far as my brokenness, I am as far away from God as I can possibly be. But God came to me anyway because he's compassionate and he's loving and he's merciful and he saved me. So if we look at it that way, then what's good? Well, good is to be the object of God's undeserved, unmerited, totally um, outside. It's, it, the, it, the biggest injustice that occurred in the world occurred on the cross when a perfect and sinless man died for my sins. That's not just, but that's loving and that's compassionate. And that's what God ordained for this creation to be. So God's sparing of Nineveh was good because it demonstrated his compassion and his forbearance. The plant was good because it demonstrated his compassion towards the rebellious prophet and it was also good because it was also designed to show Jonah a deeper reality about his own heart. So when we look at the creed, the parts of it that we've talked about so far, we believe in one God. It takes faith in God. We have to believe in God, not that God. We could talk about, and, and I think Josh was a little bit confused when I said Jonah 4 at first. Well, that's not a typical creation passage. You know, I was probably expecting something from Genesis, maybe John 1 or, or something else like that. Um, or maybe you were. But we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, 
we're not being left to ourselves. He is compassionate. He is present. He is a father to us in ways that even the best father on earth cannot be. Like Mike pointed out. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's creator. And of all things visible and invisible. These invisible things are things like goodness, justice, compassion, mercy. We like to think that God is these things in a mathematical kind of a sense where A equals B, and that means that B equals A. And so as long as I define goodness as this, then God has to be that. And when he's not, I feel disillusioned. I feel cheated. I feel alone. It can create a real crisis of faith when I expect that it is that way. But that's not what God is. God is love in the sense that God is the genesis of love. God is the beginning of love. Uh, think about like a spreadsheet. A lot of you I know are in finance and probably live in spreadsheets your whole lives, which I don't understand. But in a spreadsheet, when you put in column B that B is going to equal A, B becomes a mirror of A. But B never changes A. So when we say that God is love, God is compassion, God is merciful, what we're saying is that those things are defined by God and his character, and we can count on them for that reason, and we can believe in them for that reason. But I do want to also say that if you skip to the end of the creed, it concludes... We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. If all we have is here, Paul says we're to be most pitied. There is an already reality in the sense that God, Jesus, died. He has redeemed us. He is at work in us and he is bringing meaning and redemption and, and fulfillment to our lives here on earth, but that's not where it ends. We're moving towards a place whenever it happens when there will be a full consummation of this, where there will not be stillbirth, there will not be pain, there will not be sadness, where, where the goodness of God will not just be kind of this umbrella that exists where, where we are creator and we feel it, but we also feel this tension where we're like, I don't feel like that's good. We're going to live in a world one day where it is good, where it is what God wants it to be, where, where the manifest glory and power of God is, is existentially present in a way that it's not right now because sin still exists in our world. And we can look forward to that. We can have hope in that. I want to conclude with the prayer that John Calvin has at the end of his commentary on Jonah because I think it, it fits exactly with what we're highlighting here. So let's pray. Grant, almighty God, that as you have in various ways testified and daily continue to testify how dear and precious to you are mankind. And as we enjoy daily so many and so remarkable proofs of your goodness and favor, O oh, grant that we would learn to rely wholly on your goodness 
many examples of which you set before us and which you would have us to continually experience that we may not only pass through our earthly course but also confidently aspire to the hope of that blessed and celestial life which is laid up for us in heaven through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.